Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, great to be looking at God's word with you together this morning. Uh, in case we haven't met, I'm Lachlan. And uh, let me add my welcome to Graham's from before. Great to have you joining us. Uh, great to be joining you in your living room or wherever you're watching from. And particularly if you're new or visiting, uh, we're glad uh, to have you uh, with us this morning as we look at this next part of the Gospel of John together. Uh, and today we're actually looking at a couple of stories about Jesus that are a little bit surprising. Uh, and I was thinking about these two stories. It got me thinking about stories that we hear of people that just leave us a bit surprised and think, huh, that doesn't quite fit with the image that I had of them. And since we're getting to know different members of the congregation a little bit better, I thought we could start this morning with some surprise stories about some of the staff team. Uh, now, uh, this is a bit of an experiment on Zoom, so we'll see how we go. Uh, if you're watching on the live stream on Facebook, I'm sorry this interactive portion will, won't be quite as interactive for you. Uh, but we've got some polls prepared, uh, and I've got three stories about different staff members, and it's your job uh, to, see, to say who you think it is. Uh, so first, surprising story, one of the members of the NCA staff team used to have multiple piercings in a kind of a non-standard location. Which staff member do you think that was? The next story, as the polls are getting prepared, the second story is that one staff member, who you might be surprised by, was very excited at the prospect of doing competitive axe throwing. Which staff member do you think it was? And finally, our final story for your poll is which staff member is dabbling in crocheting as a lockdown hobby? So there's the three stories, piercing, axe throwing and crocheting. Uh, one of our tech team is going to let me know who is leading the poll for each. I believe we've got piercing up first. And uh, are the votes in? Who, who is the leader, uh, the leading guest for? Paul is ahead, although uh, myself and Foxy are close behind. Well, the answer is actually me. Uh, I was the one who had multiple piercings. I used to have uh, forearm piercings here and here. Uh, if people want to see later, I can, I'm sure I can dig up a photo. Uh, but uh, I used to have some fairly non-standard piercings. Uh, what about axe throwing? Our second poll, which staff member do you think was most excited about the idea of competitive axe throwing. Who, tech team, do we have? <laughs> Tulla is the clear winner, and that is correct. Tulla was the most excited about doing competitive axe throwing on the staff team. And finally, crocheting. Which surprising staff member do you think has been dabbling in crocheting as a lockdown hobby? Tech team? Sarah and Wall are neck and neck, but Wall's been creeping ahead. Do we have a, we have a clearer winner? Wall is now the clear winner. Well, the actual answer is Foxy. Foxy is the staff member who has been dabbling in crocheting over lockdown. You see, sometimes we think we know people, but then we hear certain stories and they surprise us. Sometimes we might have heard the story before and we think, yeah, yeah, I know that. But actually, when we think about it, we go, yeah, that that doesn't quite fit with my normal image of the person. And I think that these two stories in John chapter 2 are a little bit like that. They're stories about Jesus. 
If we've been around church for a while, we might know them, but they are actually a bit surprising. As we continue to look at John's gospel, uh, we know that John is writing so that we might believe or continue believing that Jesus is the Christ, uh, the Son of God, God's rescuing King, and that by believing in him, we might have life in his name. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've been being introduced to Jesus as John presents his case that Jesus is the Christ. And the big point of John chapter 2 that we're looking at this morning is that Jesus is the Christ. Not surprising, if you're feeling a little bit cynical, you might think it's a bit underwhelming to say that's the big point of today. Uh, But this week, as we consider Jesus from a couple of angles that we're perhaps less used to looking at, we're going to see that Jesus is the Christ who provides for our needs, ushers in God's age of celebration, and has authority. We're going to be doing it in two big parts. Uh, It's almost going to be kind of like two mini-sermons as we look at first the wedding in Cana and then uh, clearing the temple. Um, And it's worth flagging that there is lots in these passages that we're not going to have time to explore in detail. Uh, If you've got questions about something that I don't touch on or something you'd like me to elaborate on further, uh, please do join our evening church Zoom where we'll be having a QA and a later tonight. But first off, part one, the wedding in Cana, the setting. At the end of last week's passage, uh, we finished with Jesus telling uh, one of his new disciples, Nathaniel, that he would see great things. Uh, We were left with an expectation of impressive things to come. We're expecting to see Jesus do impressive things to show us that Jesus is the Christ. Cut forward three days to a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there along with Jesus and his disciples. Now, uh, Cana is a real place in the ancient world. I've got a map that should appear on your screens in a moment. It's quite small uh, because it's not a very big town. You can kind of see it there uh, in the middle, sort of uh, about a third of the way down Cana. You can see Nazareth a little bit further down from it. Uh, There's about six and a half kilometres between Nazareth and Cana there, just to give you a bit of an idea of the scale of the map. Uh, And there's a photo that shows you uh, what modern-day Cana looks like. There are a couple of sites, but they're all in the same area. Uh, That's the the scenery, what the town kind of looks like. I'm pretty sure that those power poles have been added since Jesus' day. But you do get a sense of just what the scenery, the terrain looks like, Uh, so the setting of this particular story. And it's good to hear about a wedding. It's always great to hear about a wedding. I love hearing about a wedding ceremony, the celebration, the food, the drink, the setting. It's great to hear of family and friends getting together for a joyful occasion. And that is the setting of this first story we're looking at. Of course, the fact that weddings are such significant events can make it more disastrous when something goes wrong. And this wedding in Cana some 2,000 years ago is no exception. Verse 3, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, every wedding day has something go wrong. Uh, Caitlin and I were reasonably blessed in that on the day itself, the big thing that went wrong was that our car broke down on the way from the wedding photos to the reception venue. So I had to get out and push. Uh, fortunately, it was only about 100 or meters, meters or so down the road from the reception venue. Uh, so it kind of worked out as a bonus photo op without too much pain for myself involved. Uh, you can also see Scott Miller uh, pushing the car uh, just behind me as well. Uh, and so, you know, it, it kind of worked out well for us. But the wedding of Cana was a problem of a different order. Uh, Running out of wine, 
It was a huge social faux pas. It was incredibly shameful. The custom at the time was that the groom would be the one who would provide the wine for this week-long wedding celebration, but this groom had failed to provide for his guests. It's not a good way to start your life together. It's the sort of thing that would sour the start of a marriage, the start of the celebration. It's meant to be a time of joy and celebration, but it turns into a time of shameful embarrassment. I mean, it's hardly an issue of national crisis, but for the wedding in Cana, which was meant to be a celebration, for this couple and the people who are there, disaster is unfolding. And Jesus' mother, who is apparently involved in some way, whether it's formally helping or just a friend of the bridal party, she turns to Jesus, expecting him to help. But it's kind of an odd response that Jesus gives there in verse 4. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Uh, Jesus doesn't step in and solve the problem right away. In fact, he seems to distance himself between uh, the problem of the groom running out of wine and his mother. Now, Jesus isn't being rude to his mother, the word that's been translated woman. Uh, You know, it's being used as a polite address, but it's not the sort of way that you talk to your mum. You know, it's a bit like if you addressed your mum as ma'am, you know, morning ma'am. You know, it's respectful, but it's distant. It's not really a term we would use when we're speaking to our mother. And as Jesus continues to explain, his hour has not yet come. More on that in just a moment, but for now it highlights what is now shaping Jesus' life and his choices, particularly since he has started his formal ministry, gathering his disciples. It's not family relational ties. But despite the distance that Jesus has placed between them, Mary continues to trust Jesus that he is able to do something about it. So let's look at the rest of the story. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. And so the solution in the story, I mean, it's pretty straightforward, if a little odd, despite initially distancing himself from his mother and the problem, uh, the wedding had run out of wine, but Jesus provided abundant wine of the highest quality, something between 640 and 960 bottles of good plonk. Problem solved. Happy ending. But what's the point? I mean, what are we to make of this story? British comedian Rowan Atkinson, he actually has a sketch where he reads out his own adaptation of the story. It's worth watching the clip on YouTube later in full. But in essence, he says, you know, the master of the banquet, he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, and they applauded loudly in the kitchen, and they said to Jesus... How on earth did you do that? And inquired of him, do you do children parties? And it kind of captures what we might initially think of this passage. You know, if you think of the miracles that Jesus did, 
Healing people, you know, it kind of fits into his wheelhouse, caring for the sick and the marginalised and all that. You know, but turning a bunch of water into wine, it, it doesn't quite fit with the normal picture of Jesus we might hold. You know, turning water into wine, it seems more like an impressive party trick. And there's some kind of truth to that. You know, it's impressive and it happens at a party. But if we are alert readers, there's actually a lot going on here and it fits well within Jesus' wheelhouse. And the key to seeing what is going on here and what it means for us is verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. See, as we read this story, we need to remember that John is presenting a case for us to consider. John wants us to consider that Jesus is the Christ, God's rescuing king. And Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding reveals something about that. You see, the Old Testament was looking forward to the coming of the Christ. And, the two, image, and two of the images that uh, God's prophets in the Old Testament used to describe the time when the Christ would come and usher in a new age were a wedding and a time of free-flowing wine. Uh, so, for example, uh, Isaiah, whose uh, book we'll be looking at again next term, uh, uses both. In Isaiah 25, verse 6, he says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheep that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. They use an image of the finest wines. Or Isaiah 62, verse 5, As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. The Old Testament is looking forward to the time when the Christ comes and ushers in a new age as a time of, of wedding celebration, of free-flowing wine. And so as Jesus turns water into abundant wine of the highest quality at this wedding, the disciples are given a glimpse of who Jesus is. The Christ, the long-awaited saviour king who would rescue God's people and usher in this new age of joy and celebration. But not yet, because his hour had not yet come. Jesus' hour, the time when he would be glorified, is an image that John develops throughout his gospel, and this is its first mention. It points us forward to Jesus' crucifixion, when he would rescue his people, when he would provide a means of dealing with our sin, of cleansing us before God so that we can join in that time of great celebration that God had promised. So you remember those six stone water jars that held the water Jesus turned into wine? They were used for Jewish ceremonial washing. They were part of the Jewish system of ritual that reminded them of the problem of sin that leaves us unclean before God. And in using them, Jesus revealed that he was here to bring the reality that the ritual only pointed to. When Jesus is a guest at the wedding, he generously provided in more abundance and better quality than the groom whose responsibility it was. How much more will he provide for the needs of the people he has come to rescue? Uh, lockdown and the increased time in the company of a small group of people that it brings about gives us lots of opportunities to love them. 
Of course, if you're anything like me, one of the challenges of lockdown is that the fatigue combined with constant close proximity also correlates with a higher rate of failing to love, uh, to be kind and patient and gentle. Uh, but really, that just reveals a deeper problem of sin that is still in me. It shows that I am not fit to join God's great wedding celebration. Whether we are investigating the claims of Jesus or continuing to follow him, we will face times where our sin is brought front and centre to our attention. The wrong that we have done to others, even those closest to us, can weigh heavily on us and cause us to recognise that we don't deserve to be in God's presence. We don't deserve to be part of the great wedding feast. But in turning the water in the ritual purification jars into abundant wine of the best quality, in providing what the groom failed to provide, we are shown that despite of our failures, despite of our shortcomings, Jesus provides what we need. But there's more. The lockdown is draining. Every morning at 11, when they announce the case numbers, it drains me just that little bit more. A little bit more as the reality that we don't yet seem to be on the way out sinks in. We look forward to the lockdown ending. We look forward to being able to celebrate again, to go to big weddings in a non-pandemic world. Those kinds of celebrations are a good thing to look forward to. But as we think about this story, there's something worth remembering. One of the great things about going to a wedding when you're a follower of Jesus is that the joyful celebration of a wedding, it's a hint, it's a foretaste, it's a picture of the kind of eternal life that God has waiting for us. This morning, we are reminded that the Bible pictures heaven by using images of the best kind of wedding celebration, a joyful celebration with the best food and the best drink. And if you happen to be talking to a friend or a family member, a question that might take conversation a bit deeper, maybe give you a chance to share something of the passage, is, you know, what do you think heaven would be like and why? If there is an afterlife, what would it be like? During lockdown, it's right and natural that we long for this season to be over, to be able to gather again and celebrate with something, uh, a wedding-type celebration with good food and good drink and good company in a beautiful setting. But for those of us who follow Jesus, we have something even better that we can set our sights on. We can look forward to the wedding feast of Jesus, and we can be confident that we're invited because if we trust him, he provides richly and abundantly by dying in our place so that we can attend. We've considered the wedding at Cana onto our second story where Jesus clears the temple. Uh, and this one's a little bit shorter. Uh, as Jesus clears the temple, we're going to look at the disruption and the two responses. Uh, first, the disruption from verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So... He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. See, just like 
the wedding at Cana presented Jesus performing a sign that we might find a bit odd. Jesus clearing the temple presents Jesus in a way that challenges the way we might normally think of him. You know, we think of Jesus as kind and gentle, and he is, but this story can kind of seem at odds with that. It also seems like such a stark contrast with the Jesus we have just seen at Cana. You know, at the wedding, Jesus turns water into wine. It's happy fun times, Jesus, the one who's here to get the party started. Bring in the age of the Messiah. But here, we're confronted with Jesus who seems angry, who disrupts the established pattern of worship in the midst of one of the biggest Jewish feasts of the year. It looks like Jesus went from party starter to party pooper. To understand what happened, though, it's helpful to look at the two responses to Jesus. Uh, Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? So in the story, there's two broad responses, the way the disciples respond and the way that the Jewish leadership responds. But both responses recognize Jesus is acting in a Christ-like way. He's doing something that you'd expect the Christ, the long-awaited rescuing king of the Jews, to do when he arrived. The temple was the place where the Jews went to meet with God, to offer sacrifices for their sin, to maintain their relationship with him. It was an important place. But it was also prone to abuse. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the people who were meant to be focused, uh, help, help, the keep temp, keep, blah, 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 help keep the temple focused on its purpose, failed in their duties. And the Jews were looking forward to a day when God would send his Christ to deal with these problems. And we won't read the passages now, but if you want to look up Malachi 3, 1 to 3, Malachi 3, 1 to 3, or Zechariah 14, 21 later. Uh, those are a couple of verses just to, uh, to show that was one of the things they were expecting the Christ to do. But the temple, it wasn't just for the Jews. It was originally designed to be a place where people from every nation could come and worship God. Uh, we have a model here of the temple that someone has built, a reconstruction of the temple in Jesus' day. This is what it looked like. Uh, and Gentiles, non-Jews, were limited to the outer court. So kind of on the, the left-hand side of the, the, you know, the temple uh, wall there, uh, you can see there is a small wall that runs down from top to bottom. Uh, that was a wall that had signs on it saying that the Gentiles couldn't go past there on penalty of death. Only Jews could go past that point. For the nations, if they wanted to worship God, they were only allowed to go up to that point. But the problem for that, for that was that that outer court where the Gentiles were allowed to go, it had been turned into a marketplace for the convenience of Jewish pilgrims. See, instead of also serving as a place for the nations to come before God, broken and contrite for their sin, anyone from the nations now found themselves edged out. Instead of being able to hear of God's great mercy and forgiveness, all they could hear was the distracting clamour of bellowing cattle and bleating sheep and commerce going on around them. Many of us might have a visceral present lived experience, possibly right now as we struggle to listen to God's word in the Bible, but have the distraction of clamouring, bleating and lowing of those who might normally be in creation other programs. Uh, But while for us it is a function of lockdown, just something we're doing our best to manage, in Jesus' day it reflected 
a failure of managing the temple properly. As the symbolic place where God dwelt with his people and the problem of sin was dealt with, the temple wasn't functioning as it should have been. And clearing the temple of the things that stopped it from serving its purpose is exactly the sort of thing that the Christ would do. As Jesus cleared the temple, he's doing something Christ-like. And everyone seems to have understood this. But there's two different responses. On the one hand, response A, the disciples consider what Jesus is doing in light of the Old Testament. They remember the words of David, who in Psalm 69 is consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord. In Psalm 69, King David, the first rescuing king or the prototype Christ, is facing opposition from people who didn't understand or show sympathy for his commitment to God's house. Jesus, just like David was, is concerned with right worship of God. And that concern attracts opposition from the Jewish leadership. Response A is to consider the picture of the Christ that is painted by the Old Testament and to see if Jesus matches up with it, to see that Jesus does indeed correlate with the picture you expect of the Christ. But on the other hand is response B. The Jewish leadership appear to have also perceived that this is a Christ-like action. They don't question the rightness of what Jesus did, just his authority to act in this way. They want Jesus to give a sign that proves he's the Christ. Now, trying to figure out if Jesus is the Christ, if he is God's rescuing king, that's what the Gospel of John is all about. But the Jewish leadership is going about it in a way that shows their pride, their arrogance. You see, they set themselves up as the authority who Jesus must prove himself to. They want Jesus to march to the beat of their drum. And if Jesus really is God's Christ, God's rescuing king who rules the world, demanding he prove himself on your terms isn't exactly the posture to be adopting. It is possible to investigate Jesus' identity in the wrong way with pride and arrogance that demands he answer to you. But despite their attitude, Jesus does offer them a sign to prove he's who he says he is. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? And you can understand their incredulity. Standing in the temple, the whole precinct which was continuing to be constructed, uh, had been being constructed for 46 years and would continue for another 30 years or so before it was finally finished. And here's this guy from the sticks who sounds like he's suggesting, knock it all down and I'll get the whole thing done in three days. I'll magically rebuild it. But as John tells us in verse 21, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. It's not the last time people will misunderstand Jesus. But again, so what? Well, firstly, there's an implied warning that as we consider Jesus, be careful about demanding that he comes to us on our terms. In fact, if you're considering following Jesus or sharing Jesus with someone, you know, it's something to consider that the, I'll believe in Jesus if he just fill in the blank. It's not the right attitude to have. The Jewish leadership knew the scriptures well and were leaders of God's people, yet they could look for the Christ in the wrong way. All of us should be on guard against pride when it comes to considering Jesus' words and actions. But also, like the wedding at Cana, 
It's worth remembering that John is presenting a case to help us see that Jesus is the Christ and what that means. And like the wedding at Cana, the Old Testament sheds light on what Jesus is doing. Uh, We've already seen how John shows us that Jesus fits uh, uh, the picture the Old Testament was painting to expect of the Christ. But even more significant is John telegraphing for us as readers to look forward to the cross in verse 22. After Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. There are things that following Jesus depends on that sound ludicrous. The idea of worshipping a crucified Christ sounds ridiculous. The idea of a rescuing king who dies on the cross, he doesn't appear to be succeeding at rescuing or ruling. It's ridiculous. The idea that death by crucifixion could be the path that God had planned for his king sounds preposterous unless it was something that God himself had planned all along and that was actually clear in the scriptures, as well as Jesus himself testifying about it in advance. Now, it's not entirely clear if John has a particular passage in mind or if he's thinking more the Old Testament generally, pointing to the death and resurrection of the Christ. But either way, reflecting on Jesus' words and actions in light of the Old Testament after his death and resurrection grew the disciples' trust in Jesus as God's Christ, the rescuing king. And it reminds us that active engagement with the scriptures is how we grow in our faith, our trust in Jesus. As we keep thinking about Jesus, one of the things that followers of Jesus do is to reflect on the Old Testament in light of Jesus' words and actions and seek to understand him in light of what the Old Testament says. But it also means that Jesus did indeed have authority to clear the temple. Jesus has the authority of the Christ, of God's universal king. He is the one who has authority to say, this is how you worship God, not that way. This way is right, that way is wrong. And if you're investigating Jesus and wondering about some of the claims that he makes, thinking, actually, they don't sit well with me. They do make me uncomfortable. Or if you're talking to someone who's wondering about some of the bizarre things that Christians hold on to, well, this passage asks us to come back and question, see Jesus' authority, that he is the Christ. He's God's king who has authority over everyone and everything, and that the sign of his authority is ultimately seen in his death and resurrection. Finally, um, I don't know that this is the main point of the passage, but I think as we chew over what John says, it's worth considering as an implication. Uh, Jesus cleansing the temple is one of those things that can seem a little bit removed from my everyday experience. Uh, It's easy to say, sure, Jesus can have authority to cleanse the temple because it doesn't really impact me on a personal level. Uh, But as we'll see in a couple of weeks, Jesus calls all people to worship God in spirit and truth, And when he does, he calls people to leave sin behind and things that hinder them from faithfully worshipping God. And one of the ongoing challenges we face when we listen to Jesus is that he says things that are disruptive and uncomfortable. We find ourselves wanting to ask, what is your authority to do that? We might do it by blatantly saying, well, Jesus doesn't have authority over that part of my life, whether it's my wallet, my sexuality, my job, or whatever else it might be. 
Or if you've been around church for a while, you might do it more subtly. We might not outright deny his authority, but we might try and say, oh, that bit was really back then. That's not for now. We might put it on the back burner, something that I'll get to when this busy season, like a Jewish Passover in ancient Jerusalem, is over. Or maybe I'll make a token gesture to help make me feel like I've made a change without it really costing anything. Uh, I'm not against small steps when it comes to making changes. Small steps are good. Uh, Small steps are sometimes all we can manage, and sometimes they're big wins. One of the greatest things is seeing even small steps of people trusting Jesus and putting their faith in him. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, But I know the sinfulness of my heart, and I have a tendency to tick the box and move on rather than seriously wrestle with the problems Jesus points out. Well, this morning we've looked at John 2, and we've seen in two distinct and perhaps somewhat surprising stories about Jesus that he is the Christ. He's the Christ who provides for our needs and ushers in God's age of celebration. He's the one who has authority as God's king. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he provides for our needs and cleanses us from sin so that we can be part of your celebration. Thank you that he has authority as your king. Help us to trust and submit to that authority. Amen.